0: This is Kick-Ass News, I'm Ben Mathis. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences. Because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to open it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today, with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers! Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Something is wrong in America. We all feel it. American life expectancy is declining for a third straight year. Birth rates are dropping. Nearly half of us think the other political party isn't just wrong, they're evil. We're the richest country in history, but we've never been more pessimistic. What's causing all the despair? My guest today argues that, contrary to conventional wisdom, our crisis isn't really about politics, it's about loneliness. As traditional tribes of place evaporate, we rally against common enemies so we can feel part of a team. And the digital revolution only throws gas on the fire. Senator Ben Sass does a deep dive into the social shifts affecting modern American life and offers a path forward in his thoughtful new book titled, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And today, Senator Sass joins me on the podcast to talk about the outsized role politics plays in our daily lives and our relationships, and how we can get back to basics and refocus on the things that really matter. He talks about the growing tribalism in politics and suggests that our problem isn't really tribes, but anti-tribes, fed by sensationalist politainment figures like Sean Hannity. He also shares recent data that indicates that Americans are feeling increasingly lonely and explains how the digital economy and smart technology are leading us to pull up our roots and lose our sense of community. Senator Ben Sass then reveals how his own family embraced the idea of a digital Sabbath and shares a few of his favorite aphorisms about digital time, real friends, and what we care about. Plus, I ask him if he's still comfortable with a Republican Party that's increasingly remaking itself in the image of Donald Trump and what it might take for him to challenge Trump for the nomination in 2020. All that and more coming up with Senator Ben Sass in just a moment. U.S. Senator Ben Sass is a fifth-generation Nebraskan, the son of a football and wrestling coach. He attended public school in Fremont, Nebraska, and spent his summers working soybean and cornfields. He was recruited to wrestle at Harvard before attending Oxford and later earning a Ph.D. in American history from Yale. Prior to the Senate, Sass spent five years as president of Midland University back in his hometown, as perhaps the only commuting family in the U.S. Senate, Ben and his wife Melissa, live in Nebraska, but are homeschooling their three children as they commute weekly back and forth to Washington, D.C. He's written what I think is an important new book titled Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. Senator Sass, thanks for coming on the podcast. Ben, thank you for the invite. I'm glad to be here. Well, Senator, I loved your previous book, The Vanishing American Adult, and I've been praising this latest book to anyone who will listen over the past week. And as I was just reading your author bio here on the book jacket, it struck me that you barely mentioned being in the U.S. Senate, and I think that says something about where your priorities are. Do you think politics plays an outsized role in American life
1: compared to maybe 50 or even 20 years ago? I do. That's some of why I wrote them. And I think it's not a healthy trend. I I think we have to distinguish more between good tribes and bad tribes. I think political tribalism is ramping in our time, um, but it's mostly happening not because we're reflectively saying, oh, let's politicize more of life. It's that political tribalism is filling a vacuum because of the decline of natural, normal, traditional tribes of family, deep friendship, work and shared vocation and local worship and community. So I do think politics is taking on a bigger role in our shared civic and, and communal life together. And I don't think that's a healthy trend.
0: And I was interested that you brought up tribes because there's constant talk of tribes these days and not in a healthy way, but you say that there's nothing innately bad about tribes. The problem is anti-tribes. Uh could you give us a definition of what an
1: anti-tribe is? Sure. I think we need to do what you said, which is start with the good tribes first and then figure out why an anti-tribe is a perversion of that. Humans are relational beings. We're social animals. Uh, We're we're made to do stuff together. Nouns are really important, but verbs are as well. And shared action are those things that we do together. And most people tend to take a lot of satisfaction out of doing something that benefits their neighbor, but doing that with other neighbors as well. And so healthy tribes are tribes like your family, your nuclear family, and then your extended family, your friends, your deepest friendships, people who not in a transactional way, but just because they love you feel pain when you're hurting and feel pleasure when you're happy, um, shared vocation, coworkers that do something together, do big cause stuff together. We're meant to do all of those things. And those are all connected to rootedness. And right now, the moment we're at in technological history, Um, is undermining place and undermining that sense of rootedness. There's always a tool. And I want to say I'm I'm sort of a techno in certain ways. I love lots of new technology. I'm fascinated by it. But your iPhone is always whispering to you that you should flee the place that you're currently at and try to go somewhere else because Mm. the place you're at isn't really important enough. And your kids sense that. Um, we parents sense that about our kids. We're all trying to flee the moment and the place we're at. And when you have place undermined like that, we feel lonely. And so we're, we're going to fill those vacuums. And so one of the easiest things to do when you feel empty and lonely and no sense of shared project is to at least be against something with someone else. And so the, the, the sense that my enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend that's as old as human nature. But what's new in our time, I think, is that we're doing a lot more anti-tribe as substitute for declining tribe. And we're not really aware of how the declining tribes are undermining that sense of shared project and vocation. Mm -hmm. And in the first chapter, you give a good example of how politics is
0: poisoning our sense of community. I'm not trying to be funny when I use the word poisoning, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Could you tell that story?
1: Yeah, it, it's a strange thing. I, my kids and I, and, and other people on my team, both you know, people that are friends of ours or people who've worked on my campaign before, we do a lot of water stations around Nebraska during different kinds of races. So I, I like to work mm-hmm. marathons, and, and I yeah, on marathons and half marathons or ten ks. Um, I love working. I grew up, you know the. Grandson of farmers and I grew up working in fields, and I take a lot of pleasure out of getting to work and i 'm not as good at at sitting still and, and doing leisure stuff and so one of the things I do to serve Nebraskans and to learn from them is I do a lot of work tours across the state i 'll drive a garbage truck or uh, i 'll work in the bean fields or whatever and uh, we do these water stations for my team. And last year, about a year and a half ago, uh, my team and I and some of my kids were working the Lincoln Marathon at a water station. And we were at mile four in a race where most people were going to run 13 miles. Some were running the full 26. But mile four is kind of the first big water station. And we happened to draw the lucky draw to be at that water station. And as runners were approaching, I had a bunch of counter protesters show up just because I was there. And if you're in public life, I'm one of eight people out of 100 in the Senate who's never been a politician before, but I've now been around this for four years, four and a half uh, with my campaign. And I'm used to having protesters. It's, It's a part of life and people have the First Amendment right to protest. But what was strange about this is. These women who showed up to counter-protest me, uh, they would wait until women between the ages of 15 and 35 would approach to take water from me, and they would scream at the top of their lungs right as I handed somebody water, "Uh, it's poison, it's poison, don't take it, he wants to kill you. That's just weird. It's a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. They let the men pass by. They let the old women pass by. They let the really little kids pass by. But they just decided to single out 15 to 35-year-old women and scream at the top of their lungs that I was trying to poison people. And when you're running a race, you're not expecting a protester. I'm, I'm in public life. I put myself out there for six years right now. I I got tough skin. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. But other people at a marathon who are about to take a water from someone who's in a service posture toward them, and they all of a sudden hear screaming in the middle of their race that they're being poisoned, that's something really wrong in our politics. And there are a lot of anecdotes like that that we could give, which you know relate to the the shrieking by both the right and the left against some of our public figures trying to eat in restaurants the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I don't I don't yeah. think many of the people doing that have thought through chess moves 3, 4, and 5 about where this goes, but I think we're headed to a darker place.
0: And now, did you find out if those protesters were from the
1: left or the alt-right? Who were they? I get protests from, from both uh, the right and the left. Yeah. I, I'm the second or third most conservative member of the Senate, but because I've, I'm not on board with everything the president does, I get protests from both sides. The these were from the left. Yeah, they, oh, okay. they tended to be wow, related okay. to uh, the abortion issue.
0: Yes. And you've been in a strange position lately of having some Democrats heaping praise upon you just because you've parted ways with Donald Trump on certain issues. But it's also led to misguided accusations from the alt right that you are somehow a Republican in name only or rhino, as they call it, or even a liberal When you, the second most conservative person in the Senate, is accused of being a liberal by a personality cult that's suddenly okay with embracing our worst geopolitical enemies is anti-law enforcement, anti-intelligence community, supports bloated boondoggles like a border wall and a massive infrastructure program that, by the way, no one asked for, does it feel like you're living in an alternate universe?
1: Well, I guess I would say, and and I, you know, again, I'm, I got thick skin and I can handle this, but it, it, what surprises me is that I ran on a certain set of issues and a lot of people who praised my position on those issues have decided that I'm a bad guy because I still hold to the same set of issues because the head of my party now doesn't hold the same view that I've held and that the Republican party used to hold. So that's a bit strange. Entitlement reform is a good example. Where yeah. I ran as probably my, you know, second or third or fourth most important issue when I was running was the fact that we're going to bankrupt the next generation if we don't start telling the truth about entitlements. And you know, I thought, and I don't mean to sound too partisan here, but I thought the Democrats, when I was running, were largely disinterested in the long-term budget of the country. But I thought the Republican Party cared about this issue. And I get to Washington, and it turns out very few people care about this (laughs) issue. Um, Either party, when it's in power, uh, seems to prefer to sweep it under the rug and pretend that the rhetoric they used when they were running about the debt and deficit and particularly entitlement over promise saying, uh, is not as big of a deal once they get into the government yeah. seats. Yeah. And I just, I think that's a bit odd and we should be having a longer term focus, not a short term, you know, is my party in power right now? Mm-hmm. Focus.
0: Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I consider myself a former Republican who supported donated and campaigned for Bush, McCain and Romney. And I now consider myself an independent simply because I don't really recognize the Republican party anymore. As the GOP appears to be transforming itself in Donald Trump's image and morphing in ways you find reprehensible, you still feel that there's enough left there for you to say that you identify as a Republican?
1: Yeah, at the grassroots level at home, I think a lot of the things that I think of as local grassroots Mm -hmm. and grass tops conservatives believe um, is a huge part of what the Republican Party has been and what I hope it will be again in the future. But at a time when the GOP seems to be transforming itself in the image of Donald Trump, can you honestly say that you identify with the party? I I believe in both small and limited government. uh, And because I still believe in small government, that makes me a Republican, not a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't really have a lot of interest in cult of personality politics. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that I'm a a bit of a mis fit for the particular moment we're at but i think i care more about the continuum from past to future than from right to left Mm -hmm. so many of the issues that motivate me when i fly away from home every sunday night or monday morning to go to dc for my work week um, are the future of cyber and hybrid war and information operations the way war is going to be transformed by the digital revolution Um, The job disruption that is going to take us from a world where when when I was a kid in the 1970s, average duration at a firm uh, was still two and a half decades for a primary breadwinner. Today, it's about 4.2 years and getting shorter. We're going to have 40 and 45 and 50 and 55-year-olds get disrupted out of not just their jobs, um, but their whole firm and their industry multiple times in mid-career. And we're going to need to figure out how to get those people back to gain fully employed without the government centrally planning all of life, but recognizing there are going to be different kinds of disruptions for 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds in the future. There are lots of issues like that where I really don't think either party, Republican or Democrat, has much of a future-focused vision. There's just not a lot of discussion in Washington right now of 10 and 20 years out. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think the federal government should be focused on, the small number of big things that we need to get done together. But then I'd like to see us trying to persuade 70 and 80 and 90% of people to join together around an agenda. But I come at those questions from the center right, not the center left. Uh, therefore, I definitely still conceive of myself as a Republican. But most of what motivates me on a day-to-day basis is, is future transformation of the old uh, 1960s entitlement chassis of federal spending that needs to be modernized.
0: Yeah. And I want to give you a lot of credit, Senator, because You seem far less concerned with the politics of the moment and the next election than with these much bigger, more complex and difficult social shifts coming at us from automation, AI, education disparity, and the mobility of the workforce, along with this declining sense of community. In a political climate where easy answers seem to win the day, uh, do you find it challenging
1: to get people interested in these much more complex problems? Yes and no. So I think it's challenging in the sense of day to day news cycles, the way cable news is swallowing an institution like the Senate, which, you know, frankly, the founders built it with six-year terms instead of two-year populist terms like in the House so that the Senate could be focused on longer-term issues. The Senate as a deliberative body has declined in really significant ways uh, since we started putting television cameras in every committee room. So at one level, yes, the pessimism in your question is warranted. But at another level, I'm I'm sort of heartened. It seems strange. um, But I think that There is kind of a bubble in this moment where the political addicts are trying to swallow the whole of our conversation. And I think a big chunk of America is resisting that. There's an interesting uh, demographic and, and sociological polling project that came out about two weeks ago called Hidden Tribes. And when you look at Hidden Tribes, a huge data set. They divide Americans up to a, into about seven different categories. And at one level, it's kind of a traditional right versus left continuum. But at another level, there's a dimension that's kind of about intensification of political belief and political addiction and political attention. And even though I'm at the right end of the spectrum on right versus left issues, one of the things that I care deeply about is us avoiding this sort of intensification of politics that says, if I don't agree with somebody on politics, I have to think that they're evil. I don't think most Americans want to do that. We're drifting to a place where it's happening. There's data that shows um, about Two and a half decades ago, only 14% of Americans regarded the other political party than the one they were in as evil. And now it's climbed to 41%. So that's tripled over the last two and a half decades. That's a big problem. But when you ask deeper questions of of whether or not people think that's healthy and whether they want that to continue, they don't. And so what you really find is about five-sevenths, about 86% of the electorate, the math doesn't add up because these are not exactly the same sized portioned groups, but um, five out of seven tribes... Uh, fall somewhere along the political spectrum, but don't want politics to displace every other aspect of life. They don't want every institution and all of our media and all of our sports conversation to be swallowed up by politics. There are two tribes that do. There's sort of a super addicted group on the left. That's about 8% of the electorate. They're also, by the way, really rich and really white. And then there's a growing tribe on the far right, which has now grown to 6%. It's intensified a lot under the Trump era. Um, And they're on the right. They're also completely addicted to politics. They're also super rich and super white. So David Brooks has taken to calling this the upper waspy white civil war um, about whether in our political addictions we should be on the right or the left. But 86 percent of Americans are saying pox on all your houses. Washington should do a smaller number of things, but do the big long term stuff and do it without screaming. That's what I believe, and I think that's what most Nebraskans and most Americans believe. So despite the fact that it's hard to get the conversation to break through in channels that are doing politics all day, I think most Americans are really yearning for something healthier than this amping political tribalism.
0: Yeah, and one of the culprits for this is obviously cable news, Um, and it may surprise some people that you, a conservative Republican, spend about maybe 19 or 20 pages of this book criticizing Sean Hannity I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of his. I think if you're looking for conservative ideas and discourse, there are much better options, even within Fox News than Hannity. He is not a conservative in the mold of Bill Buckley. Some would argue he's not a conservative at all.
1: So, in your mind, what is he? Uh, Sean Hannity's really good at what he does, uh, which is. He he has said these are his own words. Uh, I don't have the text of my book in front of me, but there, he has said that one of the things he does is starts every day on radio or on TV with his anger. And he's going to rage and allow other people to sort of project their rage on him as a kind of catharsis. And so I, I want to be clear. Hannity is not unique in this. He's uniquely good at it. But there are lots of people trying to advance this model in both radio and cable news. And the only reason I focused on Hannity was not uh, because of anything ad hominem against him, just that he's number one. Uh, He's the number two radio show in America, and he's the number one cable news program in America. And if you start to look at the shape of his program, especially in the beginning of his monologue segment he regularly does something that i'm borrowing a term from other people here but a term that i call nut picking and when i first said this in public people thought i was just stumbling over the word nitpicking <laughs> but no nut picking is something else there are 320 million of us in this country and so at any given moment you can find some jackass doing something ridiculous like there's there's never going to be a problem right. finding some grumpy leftist in a mcdonald's who you know hits <laughs> an old man in the head uh, to knock his maga hat off and you can find some grumpy <laughs> (laughs) Conservative doing something stupid to a liberal. You can always find that. There are 320 million people, so this isn't hard. But the problem is if we try to tell our neighbors that consuming that kind of stuff and regarding it as representative of everybody who has a different view than we have about policy or politics, I don't see how a republic works afterwards. And I think right now a huge part of our media ecology is something that Americans would be skeptical of if we understood what was happening, but we often don't really get what's happening. There is the barriers to entry to producing new kinds of distribution channels, broadcast TV, broadcast radio, uh, internet-based stuff, uh, click based ba- clickbait-based websites. The barriers to entry are so low right now that we're fractionalizing our consumption and the feedback loops, the algorithms inside these websites are so good at delivering exactly to you the kind of content that you clicked on yesterday that we often reshape our own news sources by the things we thought we were interested in yesterday. So we stop really getting news and we just get things that confirm our own biases. And I think the backdrop for this is in the 1950s, when there were only three channels, three becoming four. Um, I love Lucy had a 68% share every week. It meant that probably 95% of American households knew what Lucy and Desi had done that week. Hmm. It wasn't important content. I want to be clear. I don't want to sort of paint this with a, with whitewash, but it was shared content. And that had a virtue that we probably didn't understand Um, When you were having an argument with a coworker, when you were disagreeing with somebody in your neighborhood about picking up after your dog or about politics, you had content that you could go back to that you had in common, which was you all had just consumed I Love Lucy two nights ago. 68% share in the 1950s because you only had three choices. Today, 93% of American households have more than 500 channels at our disposal. So it means we have almost nothing in common. The most watched programming of the last 15 years is Sunday Night Football for three weeks in 2014 hit a 14% share. But in general, we're dealing with a whole 100 different groups of people consuming less than 1% each of whatever we're consuming. So Hannity is the most watched cable news program, but it's still only 3.2 million viewers uh, on a given night, which is 1% of the public. Rachel Maddow on the other end of the spectrum is second most viewed at nine-tenths of 1% of the public. What inevitably starts to happen is you don't have to try to pretend you're being honest to somebody who has a different view of a policy or a legislative issue than you do. You can just sort of paint them with a broad brush as them, as those evil bad guys, and your, your anti-tribalism can become a way to have a sense of shared community, again, filling in the vacuum of the fact that we have so much declining community in our actual neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, and ironically, the biggest shared experience we have these days, like you said, Monday night football, even that's been politicized.
1: So yeah, it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, one of the beautiful things about sports and I, I grew up in a house where sports was the second most important religion in our lives. Uh, my dad, I mean, Hey, I'm a right. Nebraskan, so we're the winningest college football team in the last 50 years, despite some setbacks of late. But, um, my dad was a football and wrestling coach. And one of the things that sports does is it takes people who might have lots of differences. Uh, remember the Titans, is one of my kids' favorite movies. Um, And Coach Boone, played by the Denzel Washington character, they've got big racial divides at that high school in Alexandria during busing. And yet kids from different backgrounds came together because they were pulling on oars in the same direction Sports are supposed to be one of the great unifiers because it gives us a common project and right now When I travel Nebraska It is a strange thing to be a US senator and get complaints from people about ESPN programming But it's actually a really common experience for me where people will just start complaining about what they think is wrong in American life and Fighting about uh, the kneeling in the NFL is an issue that people just wish ESPN would cover less. They care about the issue but they'd rather have us just not talk about it so much and instead talk about football. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll
0: be back with more with Senator Ben Sass when we come back in just a minute. Almost every day, we hear something on the news about a cyber attack. Sometimes it's just a bunch of pranksters. But more often, it's a foreign country with vast cyber resources trying to hack our power grid, our banking system, or our military's information networks. The National Security Agency plays a big part in protecting our country from cyber attacks, and you can help. The NSA is hiring technical professionals to serve on the front lines of information security. If you work in computer science, networking, programming, or electrical engineering, you can help keep your country safe. Design new hardware systems and networks, write faster, smarter programs, protect America's critical infrastructure, or help uncover what our adversaries are planning to do next. Learn more about careers at the National Security Agency today. Visit intelligencecareers.gov NSA. That's intelligencecareers.gov NSA. Life can be stressful, and sometimes we lose perspective on what really matters. As we rush to achieve all the things we want in life, it can be easy to forget to enjoy the smaller moments along the way. But life isn't about following a common path or having a set plan. It's about being with friends, celebrating with loved ones, and living in the moment. Heineken believes that you create the richest memories when you embrace the unexpected and open yourself to new experiences. That's why Heineken encourages everyone to live spontaneously. Because when you embrace the unexpected... Things like exploring new parties, enjoying the summertime, watching exciting soccer matches and celebrating the holidays with your family all become chances to create new stories and connections. You just have to open it up. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers! And now, back to the podcast. And you mentioned your dad, Coach Sass. Uh, He's an example of the kind of sense of community and rootedness that was common in America and that you say is declining today. By way of example, contrast your dad's world back then with yours today.
1: Well, uh, at one level, um, when I was a kid, my dad, um, we didn't have any money. And so he would ref, he coached football and wrestling, but he refed about five different sports. So many nights a week, I I was a gym rat, uh, and I followed my dad to wherever he was refing a volleyball game or, or doing a a football game or a a track meet in the spring. And on Friday nights, after Fremont high played, all these coaches from town would gather in our kitchen. And I don't know who the Democrats were. We don't have a lot of Democrats in Nebraska, but there were some. Uh, And all these guys and their wives would get together, and they were part of a community. And I remember sometimes where people would argue about politics in our kitchen. And it was somewhat interesting. Uh, I remember I was born in 72, so my consciousness about politics and their debating about it it was clear kind of in the Carter-Reagan election. So I'm seven or eight, and I start to remember these debates. But there wasn't any sense that you would possibly fractionalize your relationships because somebody who was on the coaching staff with you had a different presidential candidate than you did. Increasingly now, we are siloing and segregating ourselves along political dimensions. I'll give you you another example. Um, If you give the average American a choice between more square footage in their house and bigger lot sizes or more proximity to restaurants and more walkability to their neighbors— And before I tell you the answer about how partisans break on this, I just want to say I like all those things. There are reasons why you want square footage in your house and you want a big lot to play with your kids. And I want walkability in the neighborhood and I want proximity to restaurants. This is not a good versus evil thing. This is a preferences thing. Pew did some study on this over the last handful of years, and it turns out that Republicans about 75-25 prefer square footage and lot size, and Democrats also right about 75-25 prefer walkability and proximity to restaurants. And so we're actually starting to segregate ourselves more and more along those lines, and we're starting to regard people who differ with us as having something wrong with them or having bad motives. I I find it truly bizarre. You see the same thing with like Prius driving versus pickup truck owners in cities versus rural divide in America. And where I live, you know, you're going to regular, I have two teenage daughters and we can drive at 14 in Nebraska. So we're going to be sure they have four wheel drive because we have a lot of roads where when it snows, you can't guarantee that they're going to have been plowed. Um, (laughs) But that doesn't make me a pickup truck driver that wants to smash every Prius when I'm in a city, a Prius is easier to park. Like these things aren't all that black and white. And right now, even our consumer preferences are starting to be swallowed by our politicization of everything. And it's hard to figure out where the we comes from to tackle the next generation problems. This Republic needs to tackle together. I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: It's almost as if our consumer choices now define our ideas about what it means to be an American.
1: Yeah, I, I do think that there this consumption-production divide is deep in the soul of every American. You were kind in your opening to mention the, the book that I wrote on extended adolescence, The, the Vanishing American Adult. A year and a half ago ended up having a much larger audience than i had really expected i I wrote this because i'd been a college president for five years before i ran for senate and this was a bunch of ideas that had been bouncing around in my head about this this new moment uh where we're so rich we're the richest people in the history of humanity and by we i mean average middle-class americans are the richest people in all of human history but one of the strange unanticipated downsides of that is as technology and automation get better and better at producing high-quality, low-cost stuff, and another way of saying that so it doesn't sound, you know, depersonalized, structural, um, as human brains get better at figuring out how to pre-plan how to do our work in more efficient ways, it turns out there's just a lot less stuff that we need 14 and 16 and 18-year-olds to do. And so our kids are growing up without an experience of being producers, even as they hit and pass through and beyond puberty, Well, that's weird in human history. Historically, as people's bodies moved from being children to being adults, they had to help produce because their tribe might starve. They had to defend themselves against a neighboring tribe because war was a real threat. Now, we are so rich that our kids regularly don't have any production experiences as they come of age. Mm. And so they conceive, conceive of themselves more and more as just consumers. Well, when that happens, it undermines one of those basic drivers of human happiness, The the literature on happiness is actually pretty interesting. It's not saying anything that wise people who've had grandparents haven't maybe known for millennia, but it turns out that the literature is now starting to cement our understanding that there are only four drivers of whether or not people are happy. And they are number one, do you have a nuclear family? Number two, do you have a few deep friendships? And again, I mean, this is sort of an Aristotelian friendship. Um, You can't have a lot of them, but three or four is great. Zero or one isn't great. Uh, Number three, do you have shared vocation? Do you have meaningful work? And number four, do you have a theological or philosophical framework to make sense of death and suffering? And, And do you have a local worshiping community? All four of those things in a strange way are types of work, even though category three I'm defining as meaningful work or vocation, but all of them are in a way kinds of work. And as place gets undermined, we start to conceive of ourselves much more based on distant identities. And really when the technology allows you to flee your place, when the iPhone says to you, hey, you can be rootless, you can go anywhere, anytime in your head, what really happens is we expand the denominator of potential dissatisfaction in our lives. When you have the ability to take in a lot more news, we tend not to focus on the fact that global life expectancy has been arcing toward the skies for the last 200 years, but we're aware of things like one kidnapping that happened in one place far away. So even though kidnappings in the U.S. are basically at an all-time low, we've had data on this kind of stuff, for about 50 years, and it's at an all-time low. Parents have more anxiety about it now than at any previous point because of the way we just consume the bad negative experiences over and over in ways where we are passive to do much about it because it's some problem that originated elsewhere when what we really need to be doing is rebuild the neighborhood where we're actually called to live and love.
0: Now, we've been dancing around what I think you say is at the root of many of our current woes, which is simply loneliness. A lot of these problems, from the opioid epidemic and depression to political division and anger, are simply symptoms of something that might seem fairly simple. Americans are just plain lonely. Are there studies to support this, and why are we so
1: lonely? There is. So we are going to enter, probably by this December, uh, the third consecutive year of declining life expectancy in the U.S. That is stunning and shocking. Um, We've had decent data on life expectancy for about a century, so we can't go back to the Civil War. We probably had three years of declining life expectancy then as well, but this will be the first time we've had three straight years of declining life expectancy, and most of the drivers of it are deaths of despair, so opioid addictions, uh, overdoses in general, uh, suicide. We have a whole bunch of drivers of shortening life, and particularly among people um, who've been in communities that, in the past were socioeconomically middle class or above, so didn 't have some of the same public health challenges you would have seen so what what 's happening here so i've i've been reading and uh, talking to a lot of researchers at the National Institutes of Health, and it is amazing how fast the sea change has come. Ten years ago, almost everybody at NIH would have agreed that the number one health crisis in the u s was obesity. Uh, The number one driver of health expenditures was clearly obesity. What's new now is in the last three to five years, there's sort of an emerging consensus that obesity is mostly a downstream effect of loneliness. About 70% of obesity is defined at being more than 30 pounds overweight. Um, Obesity is mostly a downstream effect of loneliness. It isn't the case that you get fat and then you lose friends. It's that you have fewer communal connections and then you start to gain weight. That is
0: astounding. Is it a matter of Americans having fewer relationships than we used to have or just that relationships that we do have tend to be surface level friendships as opposed
1: to deep, reliable, lifelong confidants? Yeah, what, what we're finding now um, is a massive increase in the number of people who have no confidants at all. So there's, we've cut in half the number of friendships the average American has over the last 27 years. In 1990, when I graduated high school, uh, the average American had 3.2 deep friendships. Today, the average American has 1.8 deep friendships, so half as many. 43% of Americans have either only one confidant or no one at all that they talk to about anything important. It's genuinely a crisis, um, and this sense of—if if you think of Alexis de Tocqueville as the great philosopher of America, the guy who best explained to Americans who we are in the 1830s and 40s—he—he he came here from France wanting to first study our prisons, but eventually he became basically a travel writer. Writing home to Europe, trying to explain to these French people why America, this country which they thought of as founded by religious zealots, ended up also being economically really innovative. Why why would this be if you sort of sought religious liberty in in the eyes of Europe, a whole bunch of zealous weirdos, and you go to the edge of the earth, and then you all of a sudden start producing lots and lots of economic output? What drove that? Tocqueville wanted to write about it and understand it, and he realized that there was a European theory of a kind of continuum that went from isolated individuals, a bunch of lonely people who don't have a lot of relationships at one end of the spectrum, to at the other end of the spectrum, they thought about a lot of thick community run by the state, so sort of a totalitarian system of the world. And their social philosophy was to try to place nations along that continuum. And Tocqueville came to America, and he wrote back to Europe, and he said, we've got this all wrong these Americans are some of the most communally engaged social people I've ever seen. He'd traveled all over Europe. Um, He said, but they also tend to have pretty small theories of what the government is going to do. So he thought that community was the word for things Americans chose to do together. Um, And he thought that Americans had a lot of dense, shared, um, psychic satisfaction from these group projects. But his model of what that looked like was the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club or the New England town meeting. It's not relying on someone far away to pass a rule that's compulsory on you to do something. It's about we the people coming together and doing some big venture philanthropy project. And right now what's clearly happening in America is a collapse of that kind of institutional engagement in the neighborhood. Robert Putnam is is one of the inspirations for this book, and I want to say up front, uh, since I'm coming from the right side of the political spectrum and Professor Putnam is a genius, uh, political scientist and sociologist at Harvard, and he comes from the left side of the political spectrum, I know that he would disagree with a number of things in this book. But at the level of the underlying data... Many of your listeners might know of Putnam because of his famous book, Bowling Alone, uh, almost 20 years ago now, where he discovered that the average – more Americans were bowling uh, 20 years ago than at any point in U.S. history – and yet bowling leagues had their lowest membership ever. And so he coined this phrase, bowling alone, which is sort of weird. If you're not a big bowler, as, as we're not at our house, um, it seemed like the only reason you would bowl is to drink beer and hang out with friends. Like the bowling itself is just a means to facilitate your friendships. Sure. But there were more and more people bowling alone. And he went sector after sector, institution after institution, avocation after avocation. And he found Americans were highly active, but no longer nearly as associational as we used to be. In the 20 years since then, if you try to update Putnam for today, the main thing that's happened is the introduction of the iPhone in 2007 and higher download speeds in 2007, 8, 9. And so what's happening now is when my mother-in-law annoys me, um, I can flee the conversation with her by going to Wrigley under the table on my phone and hide it from her. And at one level, I love it, right? I'm annoyed by this conversation and I want to check the scores of the Cubs. But at another level, this is the wrong move because I love her she loves me. And by the way, I need her because my kids need her. She's an important part of their architecture of life. And I need to build the relationship with her, even when it's annoying and let that scar tissue become the foundation of future relationship. I need to not flee that moment. And right now, technology is almost always allowing us to flee the hard work of building the relationships that we're going to need as we age.
0: To your point, I know that in your role on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and prior to that as an advisor to the Department of Homeland Security, you've spent a lot of time reading intelligence documents in what they call Secure Compartment Information Facilities, or skiffs, where you can't bring in your phone or anything with a battery. You say you find those times in skiffs very liberating, so much so that it led your family to decide to institute a digital
1: Sabbath on Sundays. You bet. So first of all, in in my day job, I care a lot about cyber. I think deep fakes are going to present a huge challenge for us. And so uh, so much of the Senate is just theatrics So people trying to perform in these five minute sound bites uh, for the cameras. And in the intelligence community, because the information is all classified, people can't act that way. And so you take away the cameras and it turns out a lot of senators start to act like grownups. And so I, I really enjoy the briefings I get on Intel and cyber issues. It took a little while to detox to get used to not checking my phone constantly because you can't take them in there. Uh, you have to lock your phones up in, yeah. a, in a locker before you enter the room where I get these briefings. But the average American is checking our phones every 4.3 minutes from the moment we wake up over the course of the day. And when you're in the skiff for a couple of hours, you end up unwinding and actually start being able to have long talk, long conversation, and long thoughts in ways that my phone often distracts me from doing. And so at our house, we've tried to use that model uh, for ways to unplug. And there, there's a guy named Andy Crouch, uh, an evangelical guy who's kind of leads a bit of a movement of people who are becoming what he jokingly calls almost, almost Amish. Uh, these are people that don't have any theological skepticism of technology. They just think behaviorally their technologies are too addictive. And so he, Andy Crouch says um, lots of technology in his work life, but they want less and less technology disrupt, disrupting their familial and their social life. And so he has the phrase one hour a day, one day a week and one week a year, they try to unplug entirely. Wow. The dinner table is the one hour a day. And it turns out there is just a collapse of family dinner in America. Statistically, the nuclear family is in absolute free fall. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the bottom 70% of America socioeconomically where a huge share of kids just don't know their dad anymore because of family breakdown. Um, But a lot of this is exacerbated across the socioeconomic income ladder by the breakdown of family dinner. And Sherry Turkle, a professor at MIT, has done some fascinating work that even if your phone is face down at the dinner table and you never check it, it actually undermines your kid's sense that the parents are stable figures and want to spend time with your kids. It's a way of saying, yeah, I'm here at the dinner table with you, but the really important thing might be when my phone vibrates or calls because then somebody I actually care about or need to listen to um, will be able to attract my attention. And your kids need to know that they're needed. And so the dinner table matters a lot. We do the one day a week thing as well, which is on Sundays, we, our, our kids um, are 17, 14, and seven, girl, girl, big gap, boy. And so our teenage girls, you know, they don't, most of their friends are on the phone round the clock. And our girls know that in their lives, the phones basically disappear on Sunday. And even though it's hard, it's some withdrawal for them. They don't always like it. I don't want to imply they're not grumpy about it. They know it's good for them.
0: And along with the Digital Sabbath, your family has come up with what you call 16 aphorisms about digital time, real friends, and what we care about. Can you walk
1: us through a couple of those? We're trying to do some of those habits because, to your point about the rules we wrote up on our refrigerator, and these are just sort of SAS family made-up things, but... Your thousandth social media friend doesn't make you any happier. Lots of data (laughs) that shows this. You go from 200 to 500, 500 to 1,000, you don't get happier. Your third or fourth real human friend makes you a lot happier. If you know the little old lady who lives two doors down from you, statistically, you're much more likely to be happy um, if you know her and if she knows she can rely on you. And if you have more social media time, it displaces that actual neighborhood. And I love
0: that your family embraces data, because as a society, we're seeing a backlash against data and facts, as well as an increasing demonization of academics and experts. Somehow, it seems that any information that's well-sourced or from a reliable institution, whether it's a think tank or a mainstream newspaper, is instantly suspect. I might even go one step further and say that it's not just a demonization of intellectuals and experts, but an outright embrace of ignorance. As someone who spent much of your life in academia and was president of a university, that has to be disheartening for you. How did we go from aspiring to a higher education and social advancement to denigrating it?
1: Yeah, so let's maybe – I'm going to agree with you, but I'm going to get there on the second step. So step one, I do want to say that I think one of the things that the flattening of the world here, borrowing from like Tom Friedman, uh, Uh one of the things technology does is shorten time and space for us. One of the benefits of it is it allows more people to call um, BS for both good and bad reasons on a lot of the guardrails that prohibit people from getting into conversations if they don't have the right credentials. Mm-hmm. So I think a huge part of the hyper-specialization of the American economy and of American intellectual life is partly building up barriers to entry for smart lay people uh, to be able to learn their way into conversations. So the flattening of some of that world, I think, is a virtue. But the main point you're making, I agree with, uh, which is that there is this increasing anti-intellectualism, which says we should assume that experts don't know anything more than than the drunk guy that I like listen to rant at the bar um, because he says it in a really folksy way. Well, it turns out, you know, interpreting data is hard and I I think everybody can do it. I don't think you need advanced degrees to do it, but you do need to understand something about the rules that enable us to do it. And right now, one of the key drivers of the intellectualism of our moment, I think, is just a radical impatience Mm -hmm. with an assumption that we can't know everything in the next seven seconds because that's about how long our attention span is. It's not healthy um cal newport has written a really great book called deep work um and he argues he's a computer scientist at georgetown and in his you know work life he, he does distributed systems and all the stuff that you know even though i'm a little bit math nerdy and interested uh, a math layman like me can't even understand most of the stuff that he does in his computer science life but he brackets his technology to his work life, and in their home life, they're highly skeptical of technology as basically just breaking down our attention spans. And so Newport, who wants to coach his three little boys in little league sports and whatnot, he tries to only work five or six or seven hours a day on his core discipline at Georgetown in computer science, but he never allows himself to be distracted or interrupted by anything. And it turns out when you start doing what he calls time blocking, but if, if you essentially map the way you invest your time, If you're checking your iPhone every four minutes, you end up being much, much less productive, Mm -hmm. but you also end up rewiring part of your frontal lobe. We particularly know this about teenagers uh, to make assumptions about the speed of knowledge and about your ability to assimilate knowledge that make you skeptical of anybody who's done the deep and long work of actually learning their field we're all impoverished by that over time.
0: There's been a lot of speculation that you might run against Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, I'm not going to ask you right here and now if you will run in 2020 because I know the answer I'll get. But <laughs> let me word it to you this way. What would it take for you to run in 2020?
1: I have three little kids, and uh, <laughs> I'm pretty darn happy with my day calling being a dad. And I think the the job of the presidency is incredibly difficult. I did some work in the intelligence space uh, for George W. Bush, most of my life is right. private sector background, but I got to work uh, for President Bush '43 for a little while, and I've I've seen that job up close, and it is brutal. And I don't think it really fits people uh, that have little kids. So I, I think I'm just a misfit for the for the moment we're at. But um, I'm getting to talk to you today from Fremont, Nebraska. And the Noxious Weed Control Board of my county has an opening. And I think they might be calling my name. <laughs> well,
0: from reading your book, I kind of believe you, I'll tell you. Before we go, I was interested to learn that you deliberately chose to sit in the desk of the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Doesn't get more liberal than him. What was the su- of that.
1: Yeah, two things. Uh, number one, Moynihan is the actual author of the quote. Um, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Uh, Many people have had that quote attributed to them, but Moynihan's the actual guy who spoke it. Um, And I think we're headed into a moment where we're acting more and more like we won't have shared facts or we don't have a moral obligation to have shared facts. We can just listen to people in our tribe and assume that the way they disparage other people is is sufficient Mm -hmm. for actually having not engaged them. Um, I think that's a crisis in a republic. We have to have shared facts. So that's one of my two motives. The second is that Moynihan, uh, despite being a, a political liberal when I'm a political conservative, he did believe and uncover tons of data um, about the, the centrality of the nuclear family structure to whether or not our kids succeed And, you know, when you're second or third most conservative guy uh, in the Senate, people would assume that must mean you only care about tax cuts for rich people. You don't care about the poor. Actually, the poor are one of the main reasons why I want to do this job, uh, because I think that the family structure um, is being undermined by technology and all sorts of long form work. But I also think the government's ways of trying to help over the last four or five decades has fostered a kind of dependency that made dads less and less relevant. And what we really need to do is start rethinking the entitlement programs of the 1960s to enable those families that are disrupted at age 35 or 40 or 45 uh, to have parents become the breadwinners again, to be able to put bread on the table for their own kids, but also to model the sense that that productive livelihood in the nuclear family unit is the best way for our kids to come of age and start to understand themselves as co-creators and as people who were made uh, to love their neighbor and live a life of gratitude by trying to, to produce in their local community and be a part of that distribution of labor in ways that actually drives lots of human satisfaction. Moynihan was a, a great thinker on this question in the 1960s and 70s, and so he he influenced me. So despite his his partisanship being at the opposite end of the spectrum from mine, um, I think he was a special guy who took the calling of being a senator in ways that recognized, uh, again, despite the fact that he would have been for a lot more government intervention in the economy than I am for, um, he took the calling seriously in a way that recognized that government maintains a framework for ordered liberty But government can't define the good for people. Government can't actually achieve the final ends. What government should be doing is creating an environment where those little local communities and local platoons of love can flourish. Because the places people are actually going to be made happy are in their neighborhoods. And government should create a framework that enables that to happen for more of our folks. Have you written your name in the desk yet? I can't. Remember, I don't know. I haven't. I I remember when yep. they showed us. So your desks when you move into the Senate, since most of our time is actually spent back in our offices meeting with constituents, not sitting on the Senate floor. Sure. Um, they fill your desk with a whole bunch of stuff: Roberts Rules and Senate Procedure and yesterday's you know daily record of what was spoken on the floor. And so I guess they cleaned it out to show me Moynihan's name in the bottom. But I think we must not oh, get yeah. to put our name in it until probably the end of your first term. So I haven't done that yet, but I've got a seven-year-old boy who's really good at doing graffiti in the driveway. So I'll have to get some lessons. From
0: <laughs> well, I wish you the very best of luck, Senator Sass. We need more like you in the Senate. And I really, really enjoyed the book. I highly recommend it. It's called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. Senator Ben Sass, thanks so much for talking with me. Ben, thanks for having me on the show. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Senator Ben Sass for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow him on Twitter at at Sen That's S-E-N-S-A-S-S-E. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to KickAss News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at Kickass News Pod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.